Well, Joel, it's just you and me on, on New Year's. So we're recording this just before New Year's Eve. Uh, Rosemary is off on holiday and enjoying the Australian summertime. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joel and I are, are back in front of the hot cameras and microphones recording you a, a new uptime episode. And we have a lot on the docket this week. Uh, Japan is is starting some commercial offshore operations uh, in the Akita Prefecture, it's sort of northwest uh, Japan, where there's a ton of major, big lightning strikes in the wintertime. So I'll be keep my eye on that one. And then Into Machines is uh, introduced an automated bolt tightener that just runs around and tightens bolts on towers so that you kind of keep, keep technicians' uh, time better spent somewhere else. We'll talk about Gusto MSC plus NOV plus Liftra. Uh, and their new offshore blade installation tech is kind of like a, we'll, we'll talk about some throwbacks to my younger years of shingle ladders moving blades up a tower to install them offshore. So we think it could be uh, huge for the Jones Act here in the U.S. Uh, and then we're going to um, talk about uh, in German waters, um, some acoustic pingers that uh, they have installed on the foundations of all their offshore wind turbines to make sure that submarines aren't running into them. Uh, so maybe the Germans are operating a little bit differently than the, than the rest of the world. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll touch real quickly on Aronis uh, and as well, their big $39 million um, haul that they've made to expand the company and scale it up and grow. So congrats to those guys. And then I have an interview with Henrik Stamer from Neighbor Energy on the offshore wind supply chain challenges and the effects on operators. And that's a really good interview. So stick around for that. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxton. Rosemary is on holiday, and this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, Joe, Marabini uh, has started commu- commercial operations at its Noshiro port offshore wind farm in Japan. And actually, there's uh, uh, Marabini has two projects going, one in Noshiro and another one in the Akita port. And so th- this is really the first sort of commercial scale offshore wind project that's happening in Japan. And it's on the northwest corner of Japan on the sort of the main island there, which was where there's a lot of wind turbines just onshore of that. So just onshore, there's miles of wind turbines. And it happens to be probably the one of the most, the strongest lightning strike zones oh, on, in no the good. world. No good. Yeah. Uh, 200,000 amp lightning strikes are pretty common. 300,000 amps uh, has happened there. And there has been a 400,000 amp strike. I don't know if it's in that neighborhood, but it's around there. What does that do to Those a turbine are- blade? I mean, does it just literally blow oh. it apart? Like, Swiss cheese. No more, none left. Well, it caused a fire too. So it's not just that there's a lot of energy; it's also really hot. So, so this is this is an interesting development, and I'm 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 glad to see Japan is taking this on. They've learned a lot about lightning in Japan, and if you read some literature about lightning in Japan, there's been a ton, ton of really good long-term wind turbine research with video and monitoring. 
uh, just to see what's going on there. So the, the Japanese have a pretty good handle on it, I bet. But they're putting Vestas turbines in, Vestas V117 uh, 4.2 megawatt machines, which are fixed bottom. And then they have 33 of these uh, turbines between the two two ports. And it's going to create about uh, ooh, 10, well, no. It's going to power about 150,000 homes. But Japan's trying to get on that kind of scale the U.S. is. They plan to install 10 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And then uh, they're hoping for 45 gigawatts by 2040, which is a pretty rapid increase. So yeah. they have to get this first farm in and get it running to see – how they make the remaining farms, I'm guessing. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but for something in the back of my head tells me that in Japan, they had a rule that at a lightning strike, you had to shut the turbine down to inspect it to make sure it was good to go every time before you put it back mm. into commission. Is that right or wrong? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I, I know they have monitored a lot of wind turbines and instrumented a whole bunch of them, particularly mm -hmm. in Akita. Uh, provincial, which is where these wind turbines will be. I don't know what they have rules about offshore like that. If they do, mm. that's going to be that's a little tough. bit of trouble. Yeah. 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 That's tough. So uh, a couple, a couple of things about it that I'm looking at the, the kind of the press release here and a couple bullet points. I really like how they're doing 10 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and yes. 45 by 2040 because they're, it, it's more mm. realistic, right? They're like, let's yes. get the, let's get everything kind of moving. Let's get some, cause they're going to have the same struggle that, everybody else is right now in the world trying to do offshore wind yep there's no there's no vessels and the expertise right. is limited right the, the expertise is right. not not everybody knows how to do it and i know a lot of the players that are involved in some of these i don't know about this in this wind farm specifically but i know in some of the um the bids and the leasing rounds in japan it has been some some companies that have quite a bit of experience right so there's some of that uh, north sea um, experience floating over there as well so Great to see that they're they've got some goals. Ten gigawatts. I know that Japan has some great wind resource uh, all around the whole island. I mean, it's it's kind of what happens when you're an island as well, and uh, in some trade winds. Yeah. yeah. So that, that that's great to see. So um, happy that they're getting this thing going. One hundred fifty thousand homes. Another that's another thing that piques my mind there when I see thirty three turbines powering one hundred and fifty thousand homes. Um, as a lot of the business that I do is onshore U.S., we don't see as many of these 4.2 and and higher megawatt machines. No. So when you start talking offshore, right. it's always really cool to see like, oh, 10 turbines are going to power uh, 50,000 homes. It's like, wow, that's a, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, so to see 30 only 33 turbines can can power 150,000 homes. Um and it's uh, it's looking good. I, I like uh, what they're making moves on here. And uh, the weather is definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, like like you were saying, Alan, yes. strong lightning over there. So And it, and it snows uh, there a good bit, right? So the, the lightning strikes in that part of the world happen during the wintertime. So this, just coming up in January, early February, will be peak lightning season through about May, late April, May. We're going to be peak lightning season for that region. So we have to just watch the news. There will be news about it if, if one of those turbines gets struck, I'm sure, because they're mm -hmm. brand new. And the, the, these the Japanese companies I've worked with have done a tremendous job of maintaining the wind turbines. It's crazy how well those, those uh, wind turbines are operated, unlike some of the American ones, which seems like at times the blades are barely hanging on in, in Japan. It's like, wow, it's like a pristine new machine all the time. I it is learn amazing something from to them. watch. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I right. That's a, that's my thought too. It's like what what's what's is the you know Department of Energy doing when they have countries that are that have really structured uh, uh, ways of going through new technology? Are we are we sending people over there to watch? To check out how this is going down, and are we trying to bring some of that knowledge home? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I know that there's not. It's not a. It's not real easy to get data out of Japan. I'm thinking in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, man, I wonder uh, what kind of uptime percentages um, uh, they have com- as compared to what our mm. uh, O and M activities look like. You're, I'm, I'm thinking. I wonder if Phil's got some information on this from Intel Store there about. Yeah, maybe <laughs> about what's going on in Japan. But I also from some business dealings in the past. It's not easy to get information out of Japan either. Um, so. There, uh, we'll see. Um, well, let's let's ask Phil. Let's ask Phil to follow up with it and just to watch how this offshore wind yeah. farm develops. Give it twelve months, and then we'll have a pretty good read on it. But I, I my gut tells me this is going to be amazingly smooth because they have been in that area with wind turbines for quite a number of years. So this, mm-hmm. the only new part of this is the offshore bit. The rest of it, I think they got figured out. You know, looking at the looking at the image here too. Uh, uh, of this wind farm, it's actually more. I would call it near shore. I mean, these things are yes. You could you, throw you could a do rock a dr- out there. Yeah, you could do a drone inspections on these turbines from shore. You don't need a vessel. Genius. Yeah, you could. You know, you could. You could just yeah. they're they're the the furthest one out might be a might be a kilometer. I but it doesn't even look like that. You could easily get out there on one battery, do an inspection, and come back with one of these autonomous <laughs> drones. So, <laughs> smart plan. Yeah, part of their own. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the latest I've seen on LinkedIn, Joel, about bolt tightening, which is a big area, because think mm-hmm. about the millions of bolts we're going to install on wind turbines over the next year or two, and it's, it's got to be a couple of million. Uh, if you think about all the the wrenching and tightening and uh, verification that happens, you can eat up a lot of technician time by doing that, and when I stumbled across this LinkedIn post from it was from Into Machines, they were showing an automated bolt tightener, and it's like two bolt tightening uh, tools, guns I'll call them, that mm-hmm. are on a on a trolley. So as you tighten the bolts around the the tower, it follows that rail, and so it just drives down two nuts, lifts itself up, scoops over, drops two more tightens two more and it, it showed a, a, a technician with a wristband with like a gigantic eye watch that's what it kind of <laughs> would look like and he's pushing buttons now i have no idea if it made you know played music i i don't know what that little wristwatch was doing but it, the implication was is the technician was sitting there pushing this watch device to make this robot tighten bolts now I haven't seen anything like that. Everything I've seen from bolt tightening has been these guns that are, you know, it takes a human to squeeze a trigger and mm-hmm. move it over sort of thing. This looks like something that makes sense from, uh, from a sort of mass production way of doing it. And my first thought uh, is, don't they do something very similar to this in the automotive world? It's not that hard to, it doesn't take that, I guess, in my mind, it doesn't take that much ingenuity to create something that goes... Uh, stop at a hundred foot pounds of torque and then, <laughs> I don't know, print me out a receipt 
that says this bolt is at 100 foot pounds of torque so that I can show my supervisor or when someone comes back on me and says, uh, hey, were these bolts all tensioned correctly? Yes, they were. They were on this date. And here's the receipt <laughs> yeah. or, or yeah. a digital signature or some sort. And I know there's a couple of other uh, companies out here doing stuff like this. And I, up the top of my head, the names don't come come to me. One of them is uh, Torquecom, I think. Um, but but it's it's a, it's, yeah. it's a tool, same kind of same concept. So so everybody can see that we have uh, within the wind industry space, whether it is technical field advisors, commissioners, construction personnel, O and M personnel, uh, up to anything up tower, we have a shortage of skilled and trained technicians. And there's a ton of new people oh, yeah. coming into the industry. And so we applaud right. that there's a lot of people rolling over into it. You're like you're going to see some automotive people. You're going to see some other you know mechanical types coming into this thing. But so we need as many people as we can, and it's scaling so fast. As we've talked about a few times, you know, another hundred thousand, hundred twenty thousand turbines in the next ten years in the U.S. Yeah. We're at seventy right now, and we're having problems <laughs> staffing these ISPs and and these other companies that are making this energy transition happen for our country. It helps us to be able to scale our workforce without having to put Bingo. in hours and hours of training and this and that, and and so now you can you've got. Everything is reportable. I mean, I think I've seen, and I can't remember if it's TorqueCom system or not, but like every bolt head, there's a system out there that has every bolt head has a QR code. And the and the actual torque gun reads the QR code and then and then it goes into a database that's like here at on this date, that was tightened to this much based on that QR code. Oh wow. Is that Echo Bolt you're thinking about? Is that Echo Echo Bolt in the UK? I know they do something similar where they're checking the bolt tension via ultrasound means. I don't uh, think it's them. I think this is a this was okay. actually a gun, like a torque gun. So like like the you know everybody talks like oh did you ten percent these did you ten percent these like so that yeah. those are like all maintenance things that need to be done. So I I can give you some like firsthand experience now. I, I think for the most part here we're talking bolt uh, tensioning for tower sections is what we're mostly right. talking about. Right. But there is also anybody that knows wind turbines knows that there's a whole slew of blades or of, of bolts around the blade a root section that bolt into the, the spinner or the hub that's another area that we need to make sure that we get just right so oh, if you yeah. if you over tension if you over tension metal to metal bolts and studs that's a problem you shouldn't do that they, that can lead to fatigue issues down the road and blah blah blah, blah. Right. but you have a little bit more of a safety factor there when you're tensioning bolts from a composite to steel if you over if you over tension those, you can create problems immediately, structurally for that root section and those root bolts and how everything ties together there. So having a little bit more process driven control, uh, I don't want to say robotic control because that's not really what I'm, I'm more looking for. A process driven solution, right? That that has checks and balances within itself and checks gives you a report and, and and I think it's um, it's an open market space that's not flooded yet but i think that there's there's i i believe that you could have insurance companies start saying you must have one of these or uh yeah, uh i think so municipality municipalities states federal government saying you must be toward because if you if i if you go to uh, i'm sure your aeronautics knowledge alan that the faa has got some if you don't have this torqued correctly yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so yes. uh, yeah let's learn from other organizations 
and and industries to make sure that we're doing the kind of the same thing. I think it could be safe safety for all. And this makes complete sense to me. And Into Machines is based in the Netherlands, according to their website. I couldn't. Their website is it looks to be somewhat new, weirdly enough. Uh, so there's not a ton of information on it. But if you want to go check them out, you can go into machines.com, I-N-T-O-M-A-C-H-I-N-E-S.com. Uh, take a look at, at these bolt tensioning devices. They have a couple. And they act, it looked like on the website you could purchase a bolt tensioning system. Uh, but that page wasn't working when I was on it. So this, this whole concept must be new. But they're going to get flooded because based on the – Feedback on LinkedIn, there's a lot of interested parties, so they better get ready to start making some of these tensioning machines. They're going to have a busy winter. Don't forget the, the uptime podcast uh, bump that we just gave them, increasing traffic on their website. You're welcome. <laughs> You're quite welcome, yeah. Uh, Joel, there's a new type of blade lifting system for offshore wind turbines. Uh, Gusto MSC is uh, – created a basically a trolley system so i i watched a couple videos trying to figure out what they were talking about specifically and they have a, a video that shows it so think about your standard ship jackup uh vessel with a bunch of blades on deck right and, all, and the blades are stored obviously horizontally mm -hmm. so these blades are all stacked up on deck you jack the vessel up and then there's like this trolley gantry that reaches from the ship up to basically the, the bottom of the nacelle. So the tower and the nacelle are already installed. That, that, all, all that work is done with a big, heavy jack-up vehicle, a vessel with a big crane on it to put all that together. Those, those components are heavy. But the wind blades aren't nearly as heavy as in the cell, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can use a, basically a simpler system. So they have this trolley gantry that they attach between the ship and the tower. And then it has a little uh, a, a trolley that sits on it. So it goes up and down these rails. You hook the blade, set the blade on this trolley. The trolley spins the blade so it's vertical and slides it up these rails, railroad track kind of thing. And then they bolt it into the hub. So the, the benefit of the system is that instead of having limitations on wind speeds from Correct. usually it's in the 12 to 13, 14 meters per second limitations on when you can hang blades. They think they can jump that up to about 18 meters a second. That's a pretty big shift. Uh, and it just uses, it doesn't have a big crane. So you don't have a big, That's expensive, huge. heavy lift crane involved. Right. So That's it's huge. just a lot simpler yeah. to do. Right. I mean, right. So now that we're, go ahead. Well, you're, you're eliminating the, you can go to a smaller jackup. You're eliminating the massive specialized yeah. vessel. That's the big savings here. Right. right. And so, Yep. So smaller crane, of course, you're not lifting the blade as far. Once it's uh, grabbed, basically by the the uh, Liftra is also helping these guys with their with the all of the lift ah. all the lifting tools, right? Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. So what it what I'm looking at it is is okay. So I when I was a young kid, but to to make money in rural Wisconsin, roofed houses and stuff, right? So it looks like a sh what we would call a shingle ladder. And a shingle ladder is it is that's what I thought too. Yeah, like like it's got the motor at the bottom, and then it's just like, <laughs> and you, you throw bundles of shingles on it, it carries them up ladder. That's when we were really killing it, <laughs> and we didn't have to back the truck up to the edge of the roof and throw them on. Um, but throw but that's basically right. what it is: is a shingle ladder. So the questions that it raises for me is okay. So these blades, of course, they're not the heaviest component up there. We know that, 
but you're still going to be at, for one of these offshore wind turbine blades, it's a 75 to 90, 100 meter blade. You're still going to be 15 tons. I mean, they're yeah. not light. Oh, yeah. So you put some engineering, there's got to be some engineering done on the strain or the level of uh, um, force that you're putting onto that tower as this thing is kind of leaning on it when it goes up. Right. So there's there's right. some there's something there, but I I do believe that that can that's I mean of course these guys have covered the NOV is involved in it as well, right? So they've they've done the engineering. They know they what know they're what doing. They're doing. Um, yes. But my mind keeps floating to the um, the speed and tenacity at which the U.S. wants to install wind and a solution like this. Bingo. Yes, big time. Like you don't have to have that crane. Speed. You don't have to have that big crane jack-up vessel sitting at that one turbine. They work in conjunction with each other and just boom, 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 right. boom, down, leapfrog down the line. So there's uh, there's definitely some advantages to it. Um, how fast can they get it uh, mobilized and out in the out in the world working? I think it's quick. To me, it does this. The, the engineering behind it doesn't look that difficult, to be honest with you. I mean, it's no, it doesn't. Steel wise, it's pretty simple. It's just a lattice structure that you're building. Yeah. That's really the complexity part of it, and the trolley, I suppose. Yeah, having some way of pulling it up and down, but that's standard crane work. Yeah, from what I can I mean, see. it's a scalable solution. It looks like they could build build them pretty dang quickly. Well, don't you wonder if that's Part of the solution, and we're seeing so many new ideas, and because of the offshore complexity and the cost, and everybody's trying to hone in on, you know, how many people does it take to do this, how long does it take to do it, uh, what are the how, what conditions can you install wind turbine blades in this particular case? All those factors come in to tr start to drive down the cost of offshore wind, and the only way you do this is because you have farms in Europe that have been operating for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I saw a five-year anniversary for one of them recently that, oh, if we had to do it all over again, what would we do? Well, yeah, here's a, here's a new concept. Yeah, I mean, in this one, I'm looking at the pictures of this vessel. This is something that could be, uh, like I said, it's, it's not complex. This is something that could be easily Jones Act compliant very quick. That's that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, it has. To, they didn't say that when I was watching the presentation for Gusto MSC. It was from this previous fall. They didn't talk about Jones Act, but the whole time I'm watching it, thinking. I'm thinking Jones Act, Jones yeah. Act, Jones Act. Because the jack, the jack up is not anything special. That jack up exists in Louisiana. No. There's a hundred of them out of Port Fouchon right now. You, but the little bit of a crane, crane setup, that lifting mechanism from Liftra, that's standard. Those, that's a single point hookup. Like that's not a, that's nothing yes. custom and new about that. Those exist. Um, and then that lattice tower work kind of sh shingle shingle ladder thing that we're talking about. That's that's not a big yeah. feat of engineering. That's a that's a couple of weeks in a laydown yard with some good welders and some coding specialists, right? <laughs> so that I, I think that right. this is yeah. this is something that could be readily adaptable to be Jones Act compliant um, to help these to help our uh, offshore wind in the U.S. scale up and get moving. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, and I think we may see this one coming to a shore near us mm -hmm. in the next couple of months. We'll keep an eye on it. 
Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Joel, you know, we've all seen The Hunt for Red October, <laughs> that great movie with Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. And we know that uh, submarines really operate at these, in these quiet zones under the water and try to be invisible. And, and according to The Hunt for Red October, try to make themselves sound like whales <laughs> in the wilderness. Uh, but in reality, that's not what's happening. And uh, when submarines are operating sort of near shore, there's all kinds of noise sources out there. Well, obviously, we're going to put several thousand wind turbines off the shorelines and create noise in the water. So now there's a question has popped up and you see articles once in a while discussing well, what, what are the submarines going to do? Uh, you know, the turbines aren't that far apart. They're in a place around ports, kind of general vicinity of ports where, where submarines operate at. Is there going to be a lot of noise coming from the wind turbines such that the submarines may have a difficult time navigating inside of there? And it's gotten to the point where the Germans have been very proactive about it. And they have a system in Germany where the submarine pings the via sonar, pings the, <laughs> pings the turbines and turns on transponders. So all the wind turbines start talking back and saying, here I am, here I am, here I am via transponder mm -hmm. so that the submarine crews can pick out where these wind turbines are in the water. It seems like in the United States, we really haven't discussed this much at all, but a lot of these wind turbines are around ship ports and particularly where like Newport News and places where submarines mm -hmm. will operate out of, are they going to have similar systems in the United States or in other places of the world so that, you know, in theory, a submarine doesn't run into a wind turbine? It, to me. So, so knowing what, advanced technologies available to the general public. Usually we know that the, mili the yeah. military is 10 steps ahead of that, right? Like the military had Jeep, had centimeter accurate GPS for 20 years before the civilians did, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, and again, knowing what's out there, I can, uh, when we were talking offline, I said, I can find a submarine in 60 meters of water with my fishing sonar. Uh, and, and, and you could see, like you could, like I, I have this, uh, like here, Modern sonar for survey operations can find this bottle of Topo Chico on the bottom of the of the seafloor. If the sonar in a in a whatever class submarine that you want to say is operated by any military in the world can't pick out a I don't know how exactly how big the foundation would be, but a five to ten meter wide base foundation of a of a wind turbine offshore, I think we've got some bigger problems. Um, now. So diving into the problem a little bit, we know you're going to create wave noise. You're going to create scour noise. You're going to have some, yes. you're going to have some sub, yes. some subsea vortex induced vibration, which will create some bad acoustics. Right. Those things are all true. Blades whirring around up top, that vibration going through the tower that will emit subsea as well. While a subsea that acts as an insulator, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of noise in the water, which we can completely understand um, by basic physics. Also, you have some you know the high voltage lines in the water. Um, you're introducing right. some things like if you go North Sea and you look at the North Sea, traditionally it's a fairly sandy kind of silty bottom. But now you have rock dumps everywhere, and rock dumps create scour, creates subsea currents. These kind of things will mess with right, them, true. right. So, so there is a lot more noise. And if you're trying to be in you know non wartime safe, the a really easy way would be put these put some kind of transponders on these things that are ping them. Now another another thing in shallow water. Uh, now GPS doesn't penetrate water, right? That, that doesn't work, right? But these submarines have ways of locating themselves subsea yes very well um and all it takes is a screen with the gps coordinates of the turbines on them to avoid them so it almost seems like hey it's a government saying we're going to do something here to to alleviate everybody's concern that we might hit one of these with a submarine but i don't really think it's needed i mean the other side do you you think it's well well, do you think it's for the for the Russians to f- avoid Russian submarines from running into German wind turbines? Do you do you wonder that? Well, could you know that the Russians are running around, and, and the Americans are too, by the way. Yeah, it's, everybody it's is. Not yeah, just one side. Yeah, the Baltic Sea. The sure, Baltic yeah. Sea is busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right now, yeah. yeah, very busy place. But so, like, in, in, when we're reading bullet points from the press release, it says that the their the transponders are designed to be activated by a sonar transmission from a German submarine. So, if they're only activated by German submarines, what's the point, anyways? They should know where their infrastructure is. You would think so. I mean, yeah. the other side of it is, is well, see, the, I, like a wind farm isn't that big. They're, they might be a couple kilometers wide. Just sure. avoid them. Like there's – you don't need to go in there. Right. It's like when they're talking about uh, fish, fishing, commercial fishing and stuff. Like they don't take up that much space. Just don't fish by them. Well, is it a place for a submarine to hide? Ah, maybe. That, that's – you definitely got a point there. Yeah, if it be, you want to be in a place where there's enough noise, where it'd be hard for to detect you. That would be a be great a, spot, a good place to go hang around. Yeah, right, right. Well, and if the the complexities add up quickly, because well, as soon as we start drawing dropping mooring chains on the floating wind turbines, mm-hmm. that's a different thing than a fixed bottom turbine. So, do you clip a chain, a mooring chain? Oh my gosh, I hate to think about that. How much? damage that would do yeah. yeah well did did we have we had submarines run into one another recently or have a submarine accident in the u.s i think recently we did i think we recently we had a ships run near one another so the chances of uh, it's possible weirdly enough I, I think it's possible just because of the odds right well and if you look at it's a busy operating environment a lot going on if you look at um the, the areas where offshore floating wind, now we're talking about uh, mooring chains, right? So if you're looking at where they're installed, a lot of those are heavy submarine traffic corridors, right? Like the, like if you, I would you think that they are, off, yes. Offshore Norway, there's that shelf right there. I would imagine if I was a submarine operator, I'd be yeah. cruising right along the bottom of that shelf, right sneaking by, you know? So, um, yeah. I don't, again, <laughs> I'm not a submarine. I've never been a submarine. I don't, I don't know anything about how that works or, or submarine warfare. I'm not an expert. But um, yeah, I mean, so in the, in the oil and gas world, 
you have a lot of uh, more drilling rigs, more drilling uh, or floating production storage, offloading facilities all over the world in every in the Gulf of Mexico, Africa, North Sea, yeah. everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, and not only are there mooring chains going down, but there's production lines going down. There's production lines that are going down through kilometers of water that are carrying hydrocarbons from the seafloor to the surface. You, you clip one of those, now we've got a problem, right? So, yes. so there's, uh, you know, sonar targets that are hung from these things or, or attached to these things um, on the flexible risers and on the mooring chains uh, quite regularly and on, even on subsea infrastructure. Because if, if you've never seen it, something cool to Google is just like subsea oil field, just to see what the infrastructure looks like. Is this, it, it like literally built, the yeah. build looks like a, it looks just like if you drive through Midland, Texas and you see what the top side looks like, that's what it looks like. But at 2000 meters depth water it's pretty wild um but they have sonar targets all over those fields so that when an rov goes down there because visibility of course is is limited boom they pick it up and it just glows on the sonar you know like the certain angles and stuff um so i would imagine we have some of those same things going on all of the the mooring chains and and whatnot um i don't know if they've do do you think your risk is well, do, do you think the risk is coming from the U.S. Navy, which seems to be a very competent organization from all my dealings with them? They really have their act together? Or is it coming from the submarines from like the Pablo Escobars of the world where they're trying to bring in cocaine into Florida <laughs> that we have to worry about them running into some more chains? Yeah. So that's probably the more likely situation because yeah. they have had submarines made to bring coke into America. Oh, yeah. That's the one that's going to get you. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's the one that's going to clearly smack a mooring line at some point then we'll really know what's going on in the waters when that happens it's is, scary. That, is that who it's really for yeah yeah, yeah it's gotta That's be. A- I, it's hard to like so there was a there was a picture or a video clip uh maybe six months ago or something of a vessel that had a dp runoff and if you know what a deep so DP systems are the dynamic positioning where you have multiple GPSs or ways of positioning a vessel and it stays in one spot by itself, basically robotically through algorithms. And you can have a DP runoff where the GPS will get jammed or get lost or it used to happen, doesn't really happen anymore, where the vessel will start to just move where it thinks it's actually staying still. so, but it can also be where just like a part of the system fails, right? Like the bow thruster fails and the thing right. just starts going like it thinks it's putting input in, but it's not. And one of them smashed into a, a transition piece. It was like six months ago or so. I saw a video of it oh. where a vessel was just like, bam, into the transition piece of a, of a, and it, and it messed the vessel up bad. And the transition piece had like a bent ladder on it. It was, it was, it was impressive. I was like, cause I was thinking to myself like, man, do they have to do a whole, like a, from an impact from a vessel, do they have to do a whole engineering study or they have to look at down to the seafloor, see anything move? And it, after watching the video, I was like, huh, it didn't look like anything really happened to it. So maybe a submarine will just bounce off. I don't know. <laughs> just a couple of rattle cans of yellow paint. That's good as new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe maybe there'll be a submarine out there with one fin left or something. <laughs> Can't turn left. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Man. Well, I, this again, we see some of these issues rise up as we get closer and closer to more wind timbers being in the water where there's a just a lot more discussions about what if, what if, what if, what if. And I'm not sure I've seen many of these answered yet. 
I have a feeling that the Navy's figured it out. They just haven't told everybody yet. But I'm not, so, like I said, I'm not worried about the U.S. Navy too much as much as I am about everybody else that's operating in those waters. And who knows? We may learn, learn some interesting uh, uh, things about what's floating underneath <laughs> underneath the, the, the shoreline. So cool stuff. Uh, well, Joel, if you follow the SEC filings, you will have noticed that Aronis uh, has been in a Series A fundraising round, and they've uh, locked in about $39 million of funding. It still looks like they that, that Series A has about $2 million of space. So if you actually have, have you know a briefcase full, full of cash, you can send it to Lafia, and they would be glad to see it you know, in a piece of Verona's. But they're fundraising because they're expanding very quickly, and I, I think this is a good sign for them. Uh, it, it's hard being in that business. It's just a cash-intensive business. It's not a software company. It's, it's a hardware company. And they need to keep fundraising to stabilize it and get it to the point where it's just a, a global powerhouse, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, they, they do a really good job over at Aronis of, of getting out and getting some reach out in the world, right? You see them in a lot of South American countries. Uh, every trade show uh, on this side of the pond in, in the U.S., we see them at uh, every trade show on that side of the pond. In the, in the EU, we see them at. So they're spend, yeah. spending a lot of money getting the word out and stuff. But the capital-intensive part of it, when you talk about software company versus hardware company, hardware company is also a software company, especially when you're talking robotics, it is. right? Yeah. So th- they, yeah. those guys are, yeah. th- the sure. amount of, uh, of capital that goes into building something like that, it's, it's intensive. And then it, mm. also think about the, what the business model is. The business model is getting robots mobilized around the world and out onto wind farms, paying a couple of three, four people to be out there doing these things, all the training that goes along with it. Like it is a it is a very capital intensive um, business model to get off the ground and get running, but right. pay off, right? The, 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 well, as we right. talked about earlier in the episode with the, the shortage of, uh, of trained technicians in the, in the wind industry uh, that were compete, com- completely up against the wall, keep just pounding and pounding and pounding. We need more, we need more, we need more. Uh, they may have a scalable right. solution here that can fix that problem. And if they can do that, 39 million in funding could become 39 million in revenue real quick. Oh, I hope so. I really do. All these robot companies that are the people working at these companies are working their tails Mm -hmm. off. Every, every trade show I see every report I get back about where they are in the world indicates they are really trying to make a difference out there and it's they're only a small percentage of the total repair market as it sits today but hopefully uh they can become a a much bigger dominant player because we're going to need it yeah if without them we're never going to achieve some of these goals in terms of gigawatts installed it just won't happen yeah i know that aron aronis is working because we were kind of talking about this off offline they've got some LEP stuff they can do. They can do lightning protection system testing, uh, drain hole clean out, yeah. tower cleaning. And I believe they're working on a system that can do some some at least light repairs. Um, I know Rope Robotics is doing the same thing. They're a part of a consortium group, group yep. that has some funding that's want is going to come out to do some some hopefully uh, do some actual repairs. Uh, and when we get to that level. Well, that's a game changer there as well, right? Because then you become more than just a leading edge protection tool and you become a, a, a technician, a whip, but with the robot instead. Right. 
Right. Well, in this because this is a a series A round. That's like the start line, right? It all weirdly enough, in in investment world, you get to Series A. That's the gun goes off. You start running from there, trying to get to B, C, mm-hmm. and and D if you need it to have a self sustaining company. Now the real race begins. I I, I think uh, all it's going to be. It's hard to process all that. How hard they have worked to get to this point, and now it must in some way feel like okay. I have this new lease on life. Yeah. I I have all the the robot thing kind of figured out. I have technicians trained. I have robots in different countries already stationed to go. Now it's now it's really go time. Yeah. Like the last three years haven't been go time compared to the next three yeah. years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's gonna be crazy. It's gonna be it, it'll be a fun, it would be a fun, uh, fun ride to be a part of. I know. Next time I see uh, Danny Screws, I'm going to ask him how he got away with calling. This is round A, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I, 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 I understand what they're trying to do. Everybody's playing that same game, but uh, there's hasn't been a the only other company I can think of that has that kind of Series A that's really in the business of Sky Specs, right? Yeah. That uh, Sky Specs has been fundraising, and it's good to see Aronis in that same in that same space. Yeah, I look to see big things from them. I mean, of course, if you've been at any kind of industry events in the last few years, you've seen Aronis. You've seen the team. You've seen the BD people. Yeah. You've seen the CEO. You've seen the, everybody there. Yeah, I would say yeah. pretty soon you might see a bigger booth and a fancier booth from the Aronis team. You will. Well, with $39 million, I, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's the way it should be. Yep. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Welcome to the program, Henrik Stamer. Uh, glad to have you on the on the podcast. Thank you for having me here, Alan. I'm happy to be here. Henrik is the founding partner and managing director of Naver Energy, which is based in Denmark. And Naver Energy is a relatively new company and focuses on management and advisory services for offshore wind projects. So we thought it'd be great to have uh, Henrik on the podcast because we just had the California offshore auction. We just got through the New York auction, and there's auctions going on around the world, actually. And we, we, we uh, at Uptime, don't know a lot about offshore wind here in America, so we thought we'd bring in an expert. So, Henrik, welcome to, the, welcome to the program. Thanks again. Thanks again. Yeah, you guys are really hitting off uh, with some uh, very interesting uh, visions for offshore wind, both on the East Coast, of course, for many years, but now also on the West Coast. So it's very exciting. It is, it is exciting. And uh, just having finished the California offshore auction, there's a lot of questions about that, and, and if you look at the press and read the news articles, uh, obviously there are five different companies, and some of them were conglomerates, so there's more companies involved. But they they tended to be companies that have some expertise, mostly, um, in, in onshore wind, a little bit of offshore. Equinor is in there, but in America, there's so many unknowns, and I, I'm really glad to have you on the pro, on the program, just because I, I wanted to talk through something we have been talking about on uptime for a while, which is supply chain. 
and how difficult it seems at the moment to uh, acquire turbines, to make contracts, to figure out what turbine you're going to use. And it, it, it seems like to us at uptime that, uh, that the OEMs are, are being very choosy as to who they will work with. Is that what's happening behind the scenes? Very much so, uh, Alan. Uh, what we see as well is that uh, the uh, OEMs, um, they have sort of a, a bandwidth and they would like to use their sales time with the most uh, uh, the, the, the developers that are uh, progressing the most and seems as if they have uh, the right pipeline in uh, in uh, in in place so that means that whereas in the past just a few um, years ago uh, the developers they were very certain that they could get in contact with the the turbine manufacturers and participate in uh, in a good conversation around their specific project but nowadays Things has really changed. Well, I'll, I'll use the California auction as an, another good example. There were 43 companies that had been authorized to bid in that auction. I think at the beginning there were seven or eight that started and there were five at the end. So the vast majority of companies that had applied and, and were registered to bid on those leases didn't bid. My guess at the time was that they didn't have a contract with an OEM, though or an OEM wouldn't talk to them. Uh, in terms of securing wind turbines and even, same thing for cables and foundations. Is, is that what's happening? Is it early on the, the, the larger players are able to make those contracts because they have a supply chain? Absolutely. I mean, the uh, it's not only the turbines, as you say, it's also the foundation suppliers and the cable suppliers. They, are, they have, I mean, over the past several years, they have been taking new products to the market so that takes a lot of investments. At the same time, they have not been so profitable. So that means that they have certain amount of capacity. And again, uh, they want to deploy that capacity in the future with the developers that they, uh, that, that they really believe in can have, you know, um, be successful in winning auctions and have the right team and management and of course, cash to make these projects happen. Happen, happening. Otherwise, you know, you spend your time as a wind turbine manufacturer or a foundation manufacturer in, 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 um, in a wrong way. Um, so, it's really, it's really um, sellers market at the moment, and uh, they are um, already now. What we see is that they are demanding um, some fees to from from the potential buyers to involve them in uh, in a sales process. So so again, it's it's um, it could be uh, come back to your question. It could be one of the things that some of the already listed and um, listed uh, bidders at the California um, auction that they realize well it is difficult and this is going to be um, a very competitive bid so if we cannot even engage the supply chain then we might 
as well go back and revise our strategy and maybe go for something that is more long term or in a more emerging market where you are not uh, bidding um, and and actually paying for for the auctions that you win. Right. Once you win an auction in the United States, you have to pay those fees up front. And the, the United States federal government and the state government would love to have you put wind turbines out there, but there's no guarantee that you will be able to do that. But the, the money is exchanged. And so you have to try to develop that. And it seems like you it would be a big risk if you can't lock in at least one of the OEMs into a supply chain deal as to how many turbines, when you're going to put them out, out and see. Those seems like a very big risk as a developer to get those contracts in place. And if you mentioned that there's they're asking for fees, I think that makes a lot of sense to me because they're cash hungry at the moment. Does that change? If I'm a developer, how big of an impact is that on me where there, there's a limited number of manufacturers, they have a tight supply chain at the moment. Does that really change the structure of the economics, the, the, the financing of a project because of that constraint at the moment? I think um, it may change that a bit, uh, but I think uh, what is really the risk for a developer is that uh, that they end up having uh, one, let's say three, five, six hundred megawatts somewhere, pay for that, um, but because they lack um, a bigger pipeline of offshore wind projects that is secured, then they really cannot uh, get the, the turbines and the foundations for that specific project. Um, we've seen already now that if you if you have less than one gigawatt of pipeline secured, you are really not um, a company that are sought for or sought after uh, by by the salespeople of the of the turbine manufacturers and, and foundation manufacturers. Um, so so what you want to achieve is uh, to establish a, t a pipeline uh, of a certain size so at least more than one gigawatt that could be in different locations of course but that's what we are looking at at the moment uh, less than one gigawatt you are sometimes um, if if you're taking seriously you're sometimes um put aside to you know a special project a kind of sales organization where there's a limited uh, amount of um, support um, and we all know that um, buying turbines is a complicated matter because you need to factor in all the local uh, content both in terms of technical specification and and also uh, local content in terms of compliance with all sorts of uh, regulations so it's not something that you just buy off the shelf it really needs to have uh, you need to have some traction with the with the OEMs uh, to, in, in order to establish uh, the, the right setup for that specific turbine that you are acquiring well, that, that makes sense because some of the California auction winners were actually a combination of two larger energy players, two or three. Uh, and is, is that the reason why is because between the two of them, they, they can show a pipeline of one gigawatt plus projects? Is that the logic behind it? It is the logic behind it. And also because there's a very um, big push towards 
many of uh, the players at the developer side or the investor side to to be able to deploy uh, their funds into renewable energy. And I think um, the philosophy is um, if you cannot beat them, then join them. Uh, so better form these partnerships so that eventually you will win just a little bit and deploy just a little bit of your of your funds re, uh, instead of uh, losing out of uh, opportunities elsewhere. And and it's also better to be part of something that is a success uh, with 25% instead of standing outside uh, because uh, when you are involved, you also get uh, some experience out of uh, each and every, every project that you can then uh, utilize in, in the in the, the the month and years to come and revise your strategy and become uh, even more competitive in in the future i noticed that in the auction that the people that or the companies that were bidding were companies that had expertise or if they didn't have direct expertise they were trying to grab hold of expertise and and that's where neighbor energy comes in right because it is such a complicated projects to develop you need to have steady hands uh, on the controls to help minimize those extra costs and those complexities that you haven't thought of before, especially if you're new to, to offshore wind. And Neighbor is is a relatively new company in the space. Uh, how do people get a hold of you and, and to your expertise? How, how, do they, how do they reach Neighbor Energy? Yeah, so uh, obviously we make ourselves available uh, everywhere, you know, on on the internet. But we are also uh, we are part part of um, a wider group of companies that are focused hundred percent of uh, on offshore wind. Uh, we are part of uh, Ventera Group um, that are currently more than four hundred and fifty employees uh, deployed over eight different con- uh, companies, and uh, one of them is actually a US based company, um, Inspire Environmental, down in um, Rhode Island. And we have recently opened up a Ventero Group office in Rhode Island in Providence. Uh, so for US um, um, clients, we, we have a presence and we, we, are, we are operating out of uh, that legal entity and uh, we can we can service uh, in in us um, we are born out of denmark and as everyone knows that's where everything started of course there's a lot of uh, competences uh, in in many of the other european com- uh, countries like just south of us in in germany where we also have a group presence in uh, in UK and Ireland, where we also have uh, uh, presence, and then we are also expanding to um, uh, Asia. We have already entities in uh, uh, Taiwan and in Australia, as we speak. Um, but the the idea is actually to bring a lot of the European knowledge that are um, um where, that are you know common for every uh, single offshore project and which can then be reused uh, in a US um, context and then of course we will uh, like to 
form strong partnerships with local companies in in US in order to also um, complement our knowledge and know-how from Europe with what uh, is um, local requirements um, and um, and uh, local compliance with local legislation um, in order to be able to support um, developers in in both the East Coast and West Coast in the future. So if you're planning on an offshore wind project or maybe you just won an offshore lease off the coast of California, reach out to Henrik and the Naver Energy Group. Henrik, it's great to have you on the program and we'll have you back soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast.